If you're new, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it is my honor and privilege to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, please uh, go ahead and point your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Grab one of the black ones and go to Luke chapter 5. If you're not sure where that is, you'll find Luke 5 on page 861 of the church Bible. Just... uh, Look for the heading, a question about fasting on the bottom right-hand column. We're going to read from verse uh, 33 down to the end of Luke chapter 5. And I'm going to ask for the Lord's help on our time together. And then we'll, we'll get to work, working our way through this passage one verse at a time. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 33. This is the word of the Lord. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the New wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Would you pray with me? How precious is your steadfast love, O God. We, your children, take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And would you grant to us to feast on the abundance of your house and give us drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, do we see light. Amen. Someone once described a serious Christian as a person with the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. I wonder if you think about that is true of the Christian life. I wonder if you think that to be a Christian means to be a miserly curmudgeon who hates fun and hates everyone who has fun. To be holy means to be grumpy. Is this a good description of the Christian life? 
Not according to Jesus, it isn't. This is how Jesus described the Christian life. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy, he sells all that he has and buys that field. So where did we get this idea that to be a Christian means to be cranky? It wasn't from Jesus. It was probably from the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's all the time telling us about things that we shouldn't do. Maybe it was Paul who made grumpiness great again. But then you read Paul. And you find him saying that the kingdom of heaven is actually righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. You find him describing his own job as, I'm a worker for your joy. If being a Christian means being a wet blanket, we didn't get that from Jesus. And we didn't get it from the Apostle Paul. 1,600 years ago, Augustine described his conversion to Christ as a triumph of sovereign joy. He wrote in a prayer these words, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Speaking to God, you drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. To Augustine, becoming a Christian meant that God replaced fruitless joys from his old life. With himself, the one who is true pleasure. So wherever we got this idea that God is a cosmic killjoy, I'm sure that I don't know. The Bible teaches that the Christian life is an endless endeavor at all costs to inflame one's heart on the one thing that gives us greatest pleasure. And to militate against anything in us which might settle for lesser pleasures offered by sin. The Bible teaches that the Christian life is an endless endeavor at all costs to inflame our hearts. To trace their desire to the one thing that will give us greatest joy. And then to fight back against anything in us that would allow us to settle for lesser joys. That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. So in truth, a serious Christian is not a person with the haunting fear that someone's having fun. But in truth, a serious Christian is someone who gives his life to rejoicing in Jesus and inviting others into the same joy. As one author put it, a gloomy Christian is simply a contradiction of terms. 
Here at the end of Luke chapter 5, the Lord Jesus receives a criticism, a complaint, a formal complaint against his preaching and his ministry and how he's leading his disciples. Now, as a pastor, I do sometimes receive complaints. However, I have yet to receive this complaint. And this is perhaps a reflection on some deficiency in my own ministry. But this complaint issued against the Lord Jesus Christ is this. How come your people have so much fun? How come your people have so much fun? And what follows is our Lord's answer, which I would summarize like this. How to be happy forever. Follow Jesus, who is so life-transforming and joy-inducing that he turns fasting into feasting and sorrow into celebration. How to be eternally happy? Follow Jesus, who's so life-transforming, so joy-inducing, that he turns fasting into feasting and sorrow into celebration. Three parts to this passage. First, the complaint, and then the answer, and then the explanation. And so we'll work through this passage a little bit at a time. Let's take a look at verse 33 again. And let's have a closer look at the complaint. How come your people have so much fun? And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often. And they offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. It's a funny complaint. Remember last week, the Pharisees were the religious types. And they grumbled because that's what religious people do. They grumble. And they were grumbling to the disciples, and they're saying, why do you guys eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus gave the answer and said, well, that's who I came for. And notice, now their complaint has narrowed. Before it was, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? But now they're just asking, why do you eat and drink? I mean, everyone eats and drinks. But that's not what they're whining about. John's disciples fast often, and, and they pray, and, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But not your guys. Your boys just eat and drink and laugh and party and have fun. Like, come on, Jesus, when are you getting serious here? As we've already seen in Luke, the Pharisees were practicing a religion of externals, rituals, and rule-keeping. They believed that God would send his Messiah to save his people once his people were holy enough to deserve it. Once they were pure enough. And so they fasted, often, prayed, often. And this wasn't wrong. In the Bible, God commanded his people to fast. One day every year was to be set aside as a fasting day, is the holiest day of the year, the Day of Atonement. One day every single year. All other fasting that God's people would do is optional. And the people like the Pharisees had systematized religious observance and added rules to the Bible as a way of separating themselves and, and getting power for themselves and 
And so they fasted not once per year, but twice per week on Mondays and Thursdays. And while they were fasting, they would make themselves look gloomy just so that everyone who saw them would know that I'm fasting and I want you to know how dedicated to God I am. And they'd make these long prayers in the synagogues and on the street corners and they did this to be praised by others for their eloquence and for their piety. They would offer prayers at specific times of every single day showing their great devotion to the Lord. A common practice even today among our Muslim friends. But Jesus didn't teach his boys to do this. And so they're issuing their complaint. It's such an interesting complaint against the Lord of glory. Like everyone we know who's supposedly devoted to God spends their days withholding themselves from pleasure, praying for the Messiah to come, and you come along calling disciples to yourself, acting like God by forgiving sin and healing people, and all your boys do is eat and drink and laugh and have fun. What do you have to say for yourself? When are you going to teach them about the furrowed brow? I mean, come on, Jesus. There's a gap in your ministry here. And Jesus' answer is illuminating. It comes in two parts. We'll take a look at the first part first. Verses 34 and 35. Jesus Answer. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Would you hear what Jesus is saying here? And it should give us some insight into how the Lord views himself and how he views his followers. In the presence of Jesus, there is feasting and celebration. And in the absence of Jesus, there is sorrow and fasting. You guys fast so that God will send the Messiah. Well, hello, my name is Jesus. It's nice to meet you. Fasting makes no sense when you're in the presence of joy incarnate. Fasting makes no sense when you're at a wedding. It's a time for celebration. A wedding is a time for feasting. This isn't a funeral. This is a time for feasting. In Jesus' day, Wedding celebrations lasted for an entire week. An entire week. Some of us get annoyed when the happy couple is delayed getting to the reception hall and you've eaten all the peanuts and M&Ms from that little plastic cup in the middle of the table and you're like, when are they going to get here? I'm starving. Imagine having to take an entire week off for someone getting married. <laughs> you'd say, you'd RSVP to a far less weddings. But this, this is a week-long celebration of the happy couple. And Jesus is likening himself to the bridegroom and his followers to the wedding guests. And the wedding guests were the friends of the bridegroom who attended to the couple during this entire week-long celebration. They had a whole week where they could just kind of tell people what 
to do, and they would just feast and have fun. And actually, there's an old rabbinic law that said that the wedding guests were forbidden from doing anything that would lessen their joy during the wedding celebration. It was a time of celebration. If you've read the book of Nehemiah, you remember Nehemiah didn't want to go to the king when he was feeling sad because to be sad in the presence of the king was not a good idea because that was a reflection on the king himself that I'm not providing for you. And so to be sad at a wedding celebration or to be fasting at a wedding celebration meant that you were in mourning for these two people in this happy day in their life. The point is that Christians ought to look at their life of following Jesus as if it's a constant celebration of Him. And that we are to work hard to remove anything from our life that would lessen our joy in Jesus. Now often, I hear people say, God wants me to be happy. And you know what? That's exactly right. He does. He sure does. In fact, God wants you to be happy more than you want to be happy. More to the point, he sent his only son to die on the cross in your place in order to remove everything from your life that would strip you of eternal happiness. But I have to be honest with you about something. When people say this to me, it's usually because they're pushing back against something God has said. The Bible says this, but I want this. God wants me to be happy, and he would never say no to me. And so I'm going to say no to him, and I'm going to go do what makes me happy. And here's the problem. They're deceived. They've become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts have been darkened. They don't actually believe that God knows better than they do about what makes them happy. Nor do they accept that God is himself what will make them happy. They're like Eve in the garden listening to the serpent say that God is holding out on you. He doesn't, he doesn't want what's best for you. Come, I'll show you what will make you happy. Come over here. I'll give you what you really want. If that's you, if you're feeling tempted to reinterpret the Bible in order to fit your life's decisions, friends, stop doing that this instant. You are on the edge of a cliff. And I would spare you from the pain that will come from turning away from God. Please know that God does want you to be happy. He wants you to be eternally happy. Just think this through. It was God who invented happiness. It was God who invented you. Doesn't it make sense that he would know what will truly make you happy more than you know? He does. And he has given you his word, the Bible, in order to teach you what will lead you to joy and peace and happiness and to warn you about the things that will lead to sorrow and grief and death. The Bible is a manual for ever-increasing and everlasting joy. 
This is why Jesus himself in John chapter 15 said, keep my commandments. And then right after that, followed it up with this. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Commandments of God are invitations to joy. And I'm going to keep banging on that drum. That the commandments of God are invitations to joy. Because I'm not sure that all of us in this room truly believe that about following Jesus. Yes, it's true that following Jesus means dying to yourself. Denying yourself. But not because God wants to withhold something good from you. But because God wants to give something better to you. God wants to bring glory to himself in showing that he is better and sweeter and more satisfying than anything offered by sin or a life turned away from him. It is, as the old Westminster Confession said, what is the chief end of man? Who knows the answer? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. It means we celebrate the bridegroom. Jesus Christ. Uh, if, if we truly believe that this is what the Christian life is about, how might that change the way we approach evangelism? What if evangelism is simply an invitation to the greatest wedding feast ever thrown in the history of the world? You want to know how Jesus described evangelism? Matthew chapter 22, verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And listen to this. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. That's evangelism. We're having a party. Who wants to come? Sharing the gospel is offering a free invitation to eternal joy. And, and this is why Jesus is saying, that's why my boys have so much fun. Because I'm here. They're with me. Psalm 1611, in God's presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So you see with Jesus, it's always eating and drinking and feasting and celebration. This is why his boys have so much fun. They're at a wedding. And he goes on, verse 35. The days will come. When the bridegroom is taken away from them, the phrase implies a violence. And then they will fast in those days. This is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus mentions his crucifixion. And he will be taken away from his disciples. And they will mourn. And they will fast. On Friday night, Lord willing, we'll gather in this place and we'll remember the crucifixion 
I hope you can come to that. It'll be a sullen night. It'll be a sobering night. We will lament. Because yes, the Christian life is about joy. But it is not a cheap joy. No, it is a costly joy. And on Friday night, we will remember the cost of eternal joy. God the Father, not sparing His own Son to secure eternal joy for those who put Him on the cross. And it's not that Christians don't fast and pray either. We do. It's just that we don't fast and pray like those who have no joy. We don't fast and pray in the absence of joy. We fast and pray in the presence of joy. We don't fast because we're waiting for the Messiah to come. He has come. We fast and pray because we want more of Him. And we want more people to know more of Him. We fast because we are serious about joy. And there's just so many people who don't know it. The Muslim world is sinking. They're sinking in joyless despair during Ramadan right now. I thank God for those of you who took one of those little booklets and just praying for the Muslim world. If you haven't, please take one on the way out and pray that God would reveal the good news of Jesus Christ to the Muslim world who are trapped in a religious system that has oppressed them and blinded their eyes. They're worshiping a demon God. And pray that God would save them. So this is Jesus' answer as to why his boys have so much fun. And in verses 36 to 39, he explains his answer with three parables. Now, a parable is sort of like an illustration, a story that tells a lesson. And in our time in Luke, we're going to come across a whole bunch of, of parables. These three parables all have to do with newness. Three parables. We'll call this section new digs, new skins, and new wine. New digs, new skins, new wine. Let's have a look at verse 36 to 39. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new won't match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. New digs, new skins, new wine. Those of you who have raised boys, you understand what Jesus is saying about new cloth and old cloth. You buy your little guy new jeans on the first day of school, and by the end of the week, there are holes in both of his knees. It's weird because... 
when you have little boys, you never see this happen. But these little kids, they must run around and just do like knee skids across pavement all day long because it's one day they're perfect, the next day there's two holes in them. I've raised two boys and both of them blew out the knees in every pair of jeans that they owned. And so what do you do as a parent? Well, you, you either buy them new jeans or you patch the old jeans. What you don't do is buy a pair of new jeans, cut the knees out of those new pairs, and put them into the old ruined pairs to patch up the old. And you see what Jesus is saying here. He's not, he's not talking about jeans. He's saying that he is ushering in something completely new, new digs to replace the old digs. Jesus Christ is not a patch on the old way of doing things. He is something completely new. Jesus doesn't get patched into Judaism. You don't patch the gospel into the ceremonial and sacrificial system. The Messiah of God is not an add-on to the religious system of the Pharisees. And there's a good word in this for all of us. The Bible tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away and the new has come. And I'm afraid that some of us think about becoming a Christian like we think about adding a room onto our house. And Jesus did not go to the cross to become some kind of an addition to your life. He went to the cross to be a complete replacement of your life. To become everything to your life. And so I would disabuse you of any notion that Jesus is a patch for your life. He's not a security update for the software that runs your brain. He's not someone you add on to your already pretty good life. Jesus came to make all things new. He sent the old to the grave and raised the new to life. And this is a message not just for the Christians in the room, but for the non-Christians in the room. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm glad you came to church today. I want you to know that there is joy for you that you've never known before. I want you to know that up to this point, you've never actually experienced peace and joy. Friend, you've only ever caught whiffs of it, like the smell of a flower in the wind. It's there and then it's gone. It's circumstantial. You've got to stand in the right place to catch the, to catch the whiff of it. But friend, you were made for lasting joy, which isn't circumstantial. And this joy will come to you at a full surrender to Jesus Christ as you leave behind your old life of sin and become someone completely new, the person that God made you to be. I want you to know that you've been lied to your entire life. And I'm very sorry about that. But you've been told that you are who you feel yourself to be. You've been told to believe in yourself and to be true to yourself. But my friend, that's a lie. You are not who you feel yourself to be. You are who God created you to be. He made you. He knows what's best for you. And as I said earlier, he's far more committed to your happiness than even you are. When you confess your sin, turning away from that old life and turning to Jesus Christ, you will find him full of mercy and grace and ready to receive you into his eternal kingdom.
that he will transform you into the person you were made to be. Do not delay. Repent today. The second parable is like the first. New digs, new skins. In the same way that we don't patch Jesus into Judaism, we don't pour new wine into old wineskins. In those days, wine would be put into wineskins, animal skins that would be dried and treated especially for this purpose, to hold wine. So they'd crush grapes and gather the juice into vats, and they'd pour this juice into wineskins, which then would be sewed airtight. And they used new wineskins for new wine because as the juice fermented to create wine, it would release gas and expand the skin, and the new skins could stretch. But if they put new wine into old wineskins... They would burst because the old wineskins have already stretched. They've already served their purpose. And they're brittle and they would burst and both the wine and the wineskin would be ruined. You see what Jesus is saying here. It's the same thing with the new cloth. The gospel is new wine. It cannot be added to any other wineskin. You can't add the gospel of Jesus Christ to the law. The law was meant to point to Jesus, and Jesus is here, and so there's no returning to the law. One of the purposes of the law was to reveal sin, to reveal our need for a Savior. It was to show us the holiness of our God and to reveal how far we as sinners have fallen from God. It was to show us that no one can keep the law, that no one can stand righteous before a holy God, that we have all sinned, that we are all under the wrath of God for our sin. Lord willing, this fall, we're going to consider the Ten Commandments in a short series through the Ten Commandments to show that the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that He kept the law of God perfectly in our place, that He lived the life we were supposed to live. And then He died the death that we deserve to die. That on the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath of God for all who turned to Him in faith. And then by his resurrection, he secured eternal life. Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that word end here, it means the, the point, the goal, where the arrow hits, the target. And now that Christ has come, the, 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 the job of the law is done. It pointed to Christ through which we receive the righteousness of God. And this, these, these, these things, they can't be added. You see, the gospel is a stable substance. The gospel is a stable substance. Anything added to it is a subtraction from it, a negation of it. There's only one name under heaven by which men must be saved. It's not a whole bunch of Jesus and a little bit of Jamie. It's all of Jesus. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the gospel cannot be added to anything else. If you try and pour the message of God's grace and Jesus Christ into any container, it will burst. Any attempt that we make to be right with God through 
anything other than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ will betray us. It will backfire. It will lead to condemnation rather than salvation. And Jesus goes on, verse 38. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. What Jesus is unleashing into the world is something new. The fulfillment of everything that had come up to this point. It's not uh, the same old message from before. It's not a message of do better and try harder. The message of Jesus Christ in the gospel is a message of rest better and celebrate harder. It's a wedding celebration with the bridegroom in our midst. It is an all-out warfare against all things which would seek to lessen our joy in Jesus. An all-out assault against pride and self-seeking and anything that would strip us of the happiness that can only be found in our eternal happy God. It is the dead serious pursuit of tracing every pleasure upriver to Christ who is the headwater of infinite joy. It is to transform all of our delights into adoration of the one who is the satisfaction of those delights. This is the essence of the Christian life. Something that Paul would call joy unspeakable, full of glory. This is what we're about. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. New wine, feasting, and celebration. But sadly, sadly, not all who are invited to the wedding will respond to the invitation. In the final verse of chapter 5, Jesus says, No one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. In other words, the Pharisees and some others who settled for the religious system would reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would prefer their traditions and their man-made religion. Church, don't be like them. Don't fill your dry mouth with more sand when the fountain of living water is available to you. You cannot expect the law to do what only grace was built to do. Specifically, what I mean by that is that you won't find joy by starving your desire for sin, but by pursuing a satisfaction in Christ. If you're embattled in an addiction or encumbered by some reoccurring sin in your life, you won't find victory by applying the law, by trying to do better, by trying to work harder. You know how I know? Not only because I've tried it, but because you're still here. It doesn't work. It's not good news. The old isn't good. It's time for something new. Victory in your life over sin comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the grace of Almighty God. It comes when you rest in the finished work of the cross and you rejoice in His love and His mercy for you. It's not that your desires are too great that they can't be quelched. Actually, it's just the opposite. Your desires are too small. You've settled for what Augustine called fruitless joys. And I bid you this morning to turn to Christ and to see that He is the satisfaction of your deepest desires. And that when you give yourself over to Him by the Holy Spirit, your heart will swell with joy and contentment, which cannot be enticed by lesser joys. That's how you have victory over sin, by seeking your satisfaction in those three words that we'll celebrate next Lord's Day. It is finished. So why do the disciples of Jesus have so much fun? Because Jesus is with them. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, he's with you too. So your job today is this. Eat well. Drink well. Rest well. Sleep well. Rejoice well. And throw great parties. Because your laughter may just be the greatest tool you have in reaching a world without joy. Let's pray. Father, we confess that like the world and like religious people, we've subscribed to a wrong understanding of who you are. Will you give us, will you forgive us for this? Will you forgive us for seeking joy in sin and then blaming you when we're unhappy? Lord, we know that our satisfaction is meant to bring glory to you. And forgive us for every time we're seeking satisfaction in circumstances and in things. And we've withheld glory from you through our dissatisfaction. And will you make us your people, a joyful people, happy in Jesus? Will you give us grace to trace the satisfaction of our delight to your son? And will you send us from this place deeply satisfied in Jesus, ready to face whatever the world, the flesh, and the devil throw at us, Give us joy in suffering, joy in trials, joy in persecution. And Father, for those here who've never trusted in Jesus, will you enable them to feel the weight of their sin and to turn to Jesus today and to have that crushing burden lifted off them? Give them faith to believe in the gospel. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Please stand to your feet. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have this assurance of pardon from Psalm 103, verse 12, where we read, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us.